This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen to new episodes on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Listen to the show at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. That's where you can access the chat room during the show and follow Know It All for regular updates. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, President of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we create education equity plans and promote equity in education in compliance with federal civil rights law. Our website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. There you can read our blog and subscribe to the ABC Know-It-All newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. On Know-It-All today, we are talking about the juvenile justice and criminal justice trap for black boys and men. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Troy Waller, a licensed professional counselor with nearly 15 years of counseling experience. He provides counseling services to adults, adolescents, couples, and families. Dr. Waller is trained in emotional-focused therapy, EFT, which helps couples and families resolve issues with intimacy and or bonding. He also helps individuals and couples with trauma exposure, depression, anxiety, grief, and loss. Dr. Waller is most passionate about counseling and advocating for African-American male juvenile offenders. He and his wife are also proud parents to two young boys. I welcome you to the show today, Troy. Thank you for being on Know It All. Thanks for inviting me. So I wonder first if you would start by talking about the juvenile justice system and, and tell us why that is and has been your focus. Well, the juvenile justice system... Um, has been a focus of mine um, for my entire career. Um, the juvenile justice system, in my opinion, is um, a trap for um, not only African-American adolescent males, but um, minorities um, that are in the juvenile justice system. I've been working in that um, particular segment with that particular population um, for well, probably about 20 years. Um, I started started actually working several years ago when I was an undergrad and actually working um, in a diversion program where I gained a huge passion for working with first-time juvenile um, offenders. And I've worked in um, detention centers in Fairfax, group homes. Um, I've worked also um, in um, adult um criminal justice system, advocating for them in court, um, even um, visiting um, some of my clients in D.C. jail also. So mm -hmm. I, I feel that it is a trap, and it has changed the sort of dynamics of families in our um, communities, predominantly African-American communities. Um, and, and what is it about the system that, that is broken, especially for black boys? Well, um, let's start at, at how this all began, sort of the developmental um, path that, that occurs, um, because the system is, is connected to other systems. Because <clears throat> I think 
some aspects of the educational system contributes to um, a, a tremendous amount of African American boys being being um, trapped into the juvenile justice system because of a lack of, um, of adequate education. So typically, typically what happens uh, there are a lot of different theories that talk about um, talk about development of delinquency. One that um, I really share um, deeply in some of my uh, some of my own um, um, literature is Terry Moffat's theory um, about adolescent limited and life course persistence, and that su- that suggests that um, basically once a a, a African American or a a child in general, not necessarily African American, but predominantly African American, are found in this trap to where they're in the actual school system and they're sort of labeled. If they can't thrive in in sometimes elementary school, um, mm-hmm. if they can't sit sit down, if they can't um, be be mindful. Um, if they can't be obedient, <clears throat> sometimes this is this is um, a byproduct of something that's going on even huger in the actual family, because poverty. Part of poverty is that sometimes um, young African American males go into the school system still hungry, mm-hmm. and sometimes those symptoms can look a lot like like. Symptoms of ADHD, oppositional defined disorder, whatever it may be. So instead of actually asking the child whether or not you're actually hungry or you, um, or what their needs are, there's an assumption that that's bad behavior and it can't be productive in the classroom. So to fast forward this thing, if this thing happens frequently enough, then the child is not provided the supports in place to be able to engage the the academic curriculum. If you can't engage the academic curriculum, then at that point you can't engage your peers who are doing well in that particular curriculum. So you start to start to identify with those who um, can't engage with the curriculum also, um, who may be perceived as being um, being deviant to a certain extent. So. Mm-hmm. So once they're in a population where they are sort of identified as being the outcast, um, that's when that's when they're sort of labeled, and the label sort of the, at that point they start to fulfill the label that people are labeling with them with as being deviant or whatever it may be, and then suspension comes, then several other things come, and. Then something very simple as a fight, <clears throat> you can actually be um, be pulled out of your school system, placed in handcuffs, and sent into a juvenile justice system. That's sort of the the, the trap that sort of occurs. Um, all because someone didn't ask you whether or not you wanted something to eat. It's mm. pretty. It's 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 pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Um, and you know, so, there's there's an interesting um, at this point you're making is really really important. And thinking about the education system as really intertwined these days with the juvenile justice system is is important to think about. And 
there were there was a study released recently, actually even to back up before that, so the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights released the, the civil rights data collection for the 2011-2012 school year, and they, they released that data just in March of this year. Um, and for the first time ever, they actually included data about preschool children and student discipline, civil rights-related data for, for um, uh, student discipline, including student discipline and teacher equity, et cetera, uh, for more than, um, I think, for every school district in the country. And so the first, for the first time ever, we see data related to preschool students. So we're talking about three- and four-year-old babies who are being suspended and expelled from school. Um, and, you know, I, I know that the folks there at the Office for Civil Rights were reluctant to include that data initially because they didn't think of this as a problem of preschool students being kicked out of school as a problem. But um, come to find out that the data has demonstrated that more than 7,000 preschool students, three- and four-year-old children, were kicked out of school in the 11-12 school year. And not only that, black students were 18% of the overall preschool population, but they were 48% of those students who were suspended and expelled more than one time right. from school. So we're talking about preschool students. And then recently, Philip Goff and his, his colleagues, um, some of his colleagues, including another professor at the uh, at UCLA, released a study um, that that talks about how America perceives black boys as much older than they actually are. So, um, you know, they they interviewed um, teachers, uh, white teachers, and uh, the black boys that they were shown uh, they were being perceived as much older than they actually were and more likely to engage in criminal behavior. Um, so <clears throat> this notion that, you know, as a society we see black boys as deviant before they even hit the classroom is an important point that you're making. And, and you know, it, and just will you, if you will, speak to the, the question about these labels. So ADHD, um, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, oppositional defiance disorder, um, if those labels were actually real, what, were the, what would the services be that we'd be providing to students with those actual disorders rather than kicking them out of school? Right. So um, one of the things about ADHD is that it is overly diagnosed, often misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. But a very authentic ADHD child um, has has significant amount of trouble um, paying attention and not only sitting in their seat, but actually being able to verbalize some of their concerns on a consistent basis and in multiple settings. So if this is just happening in the classroom, that doesn't fit the mold. If this is happening in the classroom, if this is happening in the playground along with just their peers, if this is happening um, at home as well. So most of the time the label, the label ADHD is derived in the classroom because of a teacher who may not be able to um, fulfill the needs of a child who may be able to do well in the classroom and, and do their work, but it's not challenging enough, so they start to 
sort of play naturally as a, as a child would. But a child who actually um, really needs um, some some services provided to them if they have ADHD, um, some of them actually need some intervention, some medication um, change in diet um, because the hyperactivity is very pronounced. I can give you a couple of examples of students that I've met with um, with um, ADHD. Um, mm-hmm. there, was a, there was a child that I met um, in a classroom who was stacking chairs um, at a pretty rapid rate. Mm-hmm. And it was noticeable that this child had a lot of energy. Well, just because they could stack chairs didn't, didn't necessarily mean, okay, you have ADHD. But over time, stacking chairs, um, inability to, to sit still for any moment of time, inability to focus some of their, some of their uh, communication skills wouldn't come across well because they were easily distracted mid-sentence and looking at something possibly in the classroom or observing someone else, all of these things happened in the classroom, happened when I went into the home, happened when I observed a child in the, on the actual playground. It's so pronounced that anybody would actually easily notice that there's something a little different about this child. So hmm. in order to actually assess this, um, a thorough assessment starts from um, from child childbirth on on up, and there may be something some indicators there to lend itself towards um, some troubles based on whether or not the child had had any um, any deficiencies developmentally when they were um, when they after they were born or whether or not they were some some prenatal um, issues, or whether or not they, there was, was some oxygen def- deprivation, something to that extent. Mm-hmm. Because the real ADHD is a, is a cognitive, something cognitive that's going, that's, that's different about their brains in comparison to others. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> and and I would I would tell you uh, one that's very closely associated with that is oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional defiance disorder is simply um, a a refusal to to comply to simple requests. So if you tell a child to stop doing something, the child doesn't doesn't uh, stop. Now, typically, how many children in preschool actually um, demonstrate that behavior? Probably mo- most of them do. Yeah. So typically, oppositional defiant disorder can be can be found in almost every child. It's an, I feel that it's a natural part of some child's development to go through some some area of being oppositional. Some and now, <clears throat> so some typically um, children mature out of oppositional defiant disorder. <clears throat> The the one that's, that that comes after that is a little bit more extreme is conduct disorder. Conduct disorder is the precursor to antisocial personality disorder, and mm-hmm. this is a really strong label that suggests because the the um, antisocial personality disorder is considered a personality disorder, 
it suggests that it can't be fixed because insurance companies will not um, will not reimburse uh, clinicians for services if you are trying to treat a personality disorder. So the precursor of antisocial personality disorder, the thing that can't be fixed, is conduct disorder. So mm-hmm. if a child is labeled with conduct disorder, you're already making the assumption that this child, this behavior can't be fixed. And a lot of times, I tell you, it horrifies me when that's made, misdiagnosed. When mm-hmm. I see um, evaluations that are done, done in the court and they have conduct disorder, um, instead of something like oppositional defined disorder, which can be. Because conduct, conduct disorder means that that's the end. It, it can't be, the conduct, the behavior can't be addressed. Right. And some actual um, group homes um, and treatment facilities won't accept a child who has conduct disorder because mm-hmm. Because ultimately, a child with conduct disorder, especially the the, um, the childhood onset, that's literally the the the, um, the child that you see on the news who is really com- committing harsh crimes like um, rape, murder, whatever it may be, um, and they won't fit into their um, their program because they they are thinking that they can't be fixed. But the the issue is that. Some are labeled with conduct disorder without the charges that that um, are consistent with conduct disorder. So you may have a have a drug offense, drug possession, and um, a few occasions of, of some truancy, uh, maybe some some um, suspensions because of fighting, and boom, you all of a sudden have this extreme label conduct disorder, saying that this yeah. child child can't be fixed. Um, and you should probably give this child juvie life. <clears throat> mm. Um, mm. So, so that's that's the that's the dilemma that um, that some parents are facing when they when they are trying to advocate for their their child in a juvenile justice system. And <clears throat> it's what it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a dilemma for um, clinicians because we could we should easily be able to to, uh, to distinguish the difference between a kind of disorder and a oppositionally defined disorder kid, and even an ADHD kid that's mm-hmm. having some issues focusing in class. And so. you talked, you have an interesting, um, an interesting anecdote about Tupac and antisocial disorder. Will you talk about that and talk about how that relates to, hap- to what happens for black boys in school? Right. So years ago, I was reading some um, some literature about um, Tupac when I was in undergrad, and <clears throat> the literature was some some psychological literature, some journal articles suggested that um, Tupac was considered antisocial, um, meaning that um, he belongs in the prison system and he shouldn't be in society because. The one thing that, because I also um, teach um, at graduate and undergraduate level juvenile offender treatment, the one thing that I tell um, my students is that the one thing that's different from for a person with antisocial personality disorder is that they lack empathy. 
They can't mm-hmm. see themselves in other people's shoes, and they literally lack so much empathy that <clears throat> some of them are considered so, are labeled as sociopaths because they can go through a lie detector test without having any emotional arousal um, after telling telling a lie. Mm-hmm. Now, is that is that Tupac? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, because we've seen him be emotional on 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 television, we've we've seen him write um, lyrics that are that are based on emotions of, about his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue is that if there is a wealth of of people who have some influence and power in the uh, criminal justice system, and they see that Tupac is antisocial then it's very easy to see someone similar to Tupac as being antisocial also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of your research areas and areas of expertise is uh, resiliency. And, you know, when I, when I think of Tupac and, um, you know, black men and boys, I certainly think of resiliency. What is that and why does it matter for black boys? Resiliency is pretty much being able to overcome adversity. Um, And it's particularly important to black boys because, um, especially black boys in in impoverished communities, they're faced with adversity. They're faced with the adversity of not having enough food in the home, not having um, enough um, supervision in the home because there is, some parents who have to work so much to make the ends ends meet that they're not there as often. And then there's a um, there's a tremendous amount of young black boys who are being um, raised by single parents. And not only are they being raised by sometimes just their mother, but some, there are some in some communities that there's only the father in the household. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also in communities, typically a community where there's there's poverty, the school system is inadequate. So you're mm-hmm. in a, and you're in a um, you're in a environment where there's inadequate schooling. There's not enough food to eat. Um, in some aspects, there are not enough healthy food um, choices like grocery stores in the, in the um, area, and mm-hmm. it is riddled with crime. So in order, to, in order for you to be able to get through your regular um, um, childhood, you have to be resilient. You have to be able to overcome those, some of those adversities. And in order to overcome some of those adversities, you need some um, things that, that we call protective factors. Protective factors are um, buffers, or they they mitigate some of the some of the risk and in, risk involved um, in being in a crime um, riddled um, community. What mm-hmm. some of those protective factors is adequate supports in place, um, having having a Two-parent household can be considered a protective factor. Having a parent who actually um, helps you with your homework can be considered a protective factor. 
having a bond with your with your school can be considered a protective factor. Um, so if you have these things in place, it's more likely that you can um, be uh, resilient enough to overcome probably almost any obstacle in your way if you have that love and support um, in your in your household. Um, the problem is that most of them don't. Mhm. Mhm. So. So, what as a counselor, what is it that you do to work with families and young people to build their resiliency, but also to help them understand that there are institutional and systemic challenges that they face that are that are based on race. Okay. Um, one of the things that I do to build resiliency is um, my focus is typically on goals, self-esteem, mm-hmm. and how do you actually attain those goals. Um, so that's at an individual level. But also I noticed several, several years ago um, that when working with the, with the actual child, you actually had to work along with the family. I'm working with, um, and I found myself working with um, couples, not only in in African American households, but in Caucasian households and Hispanic households, different households. And one of the things that's important is that if there are some instabilities in the marriage, um, the child's behavior is a byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Couples counseling is one of the things that I really became fond of and got excited because of how much of an impact it had on the entire um, family. <clears throat> but one one thing that I sort of noticed working with couples, especially African-American couples, um, was that it's, it was challenging for um African American men to to not only strive strive to gain access into the mainstream economy, um, mm-hmm. but there was there were some who were denied access into the mainstream um, economy mm-hmm. due to um, being a part of the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system in their past. Because one of the one of the, um, one one of the great books that I'm sure everybody reads is um, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Um, yeah. How she how she discusses several different um, traps that are in place that once a um, African American male who is who could be actually a husband who could actually be a father how they can get trapped into the criminal justice system, end up with a felony, and no longer have the the right to vote, no longer have access to public housing, um, no longer having access to services that can help his family flourish and Mm -hmm. get his family into um, the mainstream economy, get into um, middle, middle class, basically. Mm-hmm. So all of those things affect 
that child that's in the household. Right. So. So, in the in your work counseling um, families and individuals, you you've worked with young men who face very challenging life experiences at home and in their neighborhoods and in their schools. And you've also worked with affluent black men who have education and income. Will you speak on some of the parallels that you have seen between those two groups? The, the parallels between the two groups is this, this, the same struggle to um, gain access into the mainstream economy. Um, the struggles with the, with the child... Um, typically um, is it mimics itself generation by generation because once the child has difficulty in the, in the juvenile justice system, um, that prevents them from oftentimes from being able to at minimum get a high school diploma because there are, there are some um, juvenile justice systems that provide a much more inadequate um, education than some of your um, some of your high schools that are that are inadequate in some of the um, major um, impoverished areas. Mm-hmm. So if they can't get access, they grow into adults and maybe um, have have children, and the ch- the child doesn't have an image of a father who can gain access into the mainstream economy, which is often very frustrating to the father who is trying to set a good example, good impression on on his son. Mm-hmm. And the issue is that unemployment is is very prevalent in the in the lives of those um, adult men. Um, so if unemployment is so prevalent, we've been sort of taught in our communities that in order to have a family, you need to be a provider. You need to be be able to support your family. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying all, but some have issues with being able to provide for their family because they have gone through this, this life of... Um, going through the juvenile justice system and sometimes and oftentimes the criminal justice system, um, they have times gaining employment. So if the, the standard is that you have to be able to provide for your family, you have to have a livable wage in order to do that. So a livable wage is consistent with a good job. And if you have a felony, um, it's very difficult to get a good job. So some actually don't end up raising their families as they should. Um, Some are, definitely, um, but there's still a struggle within that household um, to maintain a livable livable wage and be that honorable um, image for their their young black boy that's in in the household, and honestly, the that's not just something that occurs 
just in the households of um, impoverished communities. Also, there's a, in general, um, middle class in general is, some people state that middle class, um, once you get to middle class, you'll be okay. Well, there's a lot of people in middle class that still are struggling, that still don't have enough um, disposable income, that still are a paycheck away from being in some real financial um, financial difficulties. Mm-hmm. Because middle class, um, typically in a four, four, um, four, in a population of four people, uh, middle class is really probably sixty, sixty to seventy-five thousand dollars a year. That's not a ton of money to to be able to say, you know, I have enough saved. Um, I have I have enough to be able to get by if I miss a paycheck. Mm-hmm. And some and a lot of even middle class men struggle with thriving and maintaining um, the mainstream um, economy, being in the mainstream economy. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when that occurs, I've worked with couples where um, the, the husband and the, and the um, father of the household maybe has lost a job, and because our identities are so connected to our career, Sometimes when we lose a job, we, we lose sight of self. Hmm. And, and in some communities, that isn't, that, that, that isn't as, as consistent. Uh, because in some communities, if you, if you lose, a, lose a job, it's not as connected to your identity as much as it, as it is for African-American men. And then, you know, that I'm sure would be even further compounded for reentering men and boys and who are reentering from the juvenile justice or criminal justice system. So can you talk about, especially from from students' perspective, for um, black students returning to school from the juvenile justice system, what are the counseling services that, you provide that should be provided uh, and that are maybe too often missing for students who are returning? Well, those who actually go, so let me take a step back. So Mm -hmm. one of the best um, programs, because juvenile justice system, the goal is to be rehabilitative. and some some of the best programs are the diversion programs. Um, mm-hmm. Some of, some of the diversion programs have a anywhere between eighty to ninety percent success rate, and um, and pretty much stopping recidivism. So because it's less likely that a juvenile um, will continue to commit crimes if they've never been actually. Um, placed in a juvenile detention center because for whatever reason, a lot of research has indicated once they get into the juvenile justice system, um, mm-hmm. some, some things actually actually change to make them think that it's okay. 
or it makes them think that um, that I've I've been through it. It's not as bad as what I thought it was, because some of the some of the juvenile justice systems have sort of changed their model. Because um, the, the Missouri model is a model that has changed the, the the makeup of the juvenile justice system and the detention centers to make them sort of feel more comfortable, uh, where they're sort of bunk beds. There's more space. Um, while that's while that that definitely is um, a good thing to some aspects, but there are some negative aspects to it because mm-hmm. once once they get out of that particular system where it's a state-of-the-art um, system where there's computers in the classroom, there are bunk beds, some of those, and there's food that they can eat um, on, a, on a regular basis, that can be better than their own home. Mm-hmm. So the difficulty is that once they come out, how are you going to mimic some of the things that they've received inside that um, that detention center that sort of followed the Missouri model, at least in the structure of it. So one of the things that that should happen is a step down step down program. So instead of going from the detention center um, straight back home, you should go to a less secure um, shelter possibly, where you can learn how to reintegrate back into society, where you have some um, counselors or therapists that um, can help you understand how things change once you come out of the detention center and you're able to, to visit home on the weekend. Um, so you slowly reintegrate instead of um, from um, structure lockdown facility to complete freedom mm-hmm. um, to where you may not have a lot of the um, a lot of the, the supports in place because some of the detention centers have a lot of counselors in place but once you actually go back into um, your own school you may not talk to anybody or maybe maybe your teacher sometimes not even your teacher when in a detention center, you, you're talking to people constantly. You're talking to counselors. You're talking to teachers. You're talking to everybody because they're because typically in the juvenile detention center, they're more focused on how how are we going to help this child thrive. And once you get mm-hmm. out of the detention center, that's not t- typically the school system's mission to make sure um, you're in place to make sure you have a place to calm down if you need to. Um, so they need an actual step down program to where they go from less secure um, to group home, then to home. Mm-hmm. Because one of the one of the components that um, I experienced which was very productive um, was working in a group home in Fairfax, Virginia, where the, um, the the students who were coming out of the detention center were actually placed in a group home and actually were able to go home on weekends and actually were able to have family counseling sessions so they could work on some of the issues that pretty much got them inside of the juvenile detention center in the first place. Because, like, my belief is that the child's behavior is a byproduct of the instability that's in the household. 
Mm-hmm. So if you are able to work on the family and work on what's going on in the household, then there's a higher higher likelihood that that child can be successful once they go back. Mm-hmm. So my last question for you, Troy, is tell us about the rewards of of your work. What are some of the rewards you have experienced in doing media? Some of the rewards, um, I would say, um, with the, with some of the actual um, African American males, them being able to realize that there's a better way. Mm-hmm. So some of the rewards were some students who have gone through the juvenile justice system. Um, one in particular. Um, um, I'm thinking of it, one that was kicked out of school, suspended from school, um, had a charge of arsony, and came out and realized that he was pretty intelligent. He went and got his GED, um, went through therapy, and was pretty consistent about it, um, and went to college. Graduated from college, got a job, and is and is is married now. The issue with him was that no one knew that 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 he was a really smart, intelligent young man. He had to figure out for himself later on through a lot of counseling and therapy um, that I have the ability to be successful, mm-hmm. and he had never really been told that. Um, so that, that's one of the success stories. There, there, there are several others in terms of um, adolescence, but that, that's the one that sort of sticks out the most, um, and that's the one that um, that often comes back to me, and I've talked to him um, a couple of times before, and he's doing great, and we've connected, and, and we've built a bond to... Um, achieve all the goals he he desired, um, but also some of the successes is with um, couples, because um, in couples counseling, one of the things that's very um, very important to have is love. So you may have a lot of issues with your marriage, um, but if you have love, that can stand the test of time. It can actually, um, you can go, get through um, infidelity. You can get through job loss. You can get through um, them losing um, um, a loved one in, the, in in their lives because a lot of times grief can have an impact on, on the marriage. Um but if they have love and being able, as a therapist, being able to actually um, help them understand who, who they are um, and how they actually can work together, because one of the things that I focus on is who you are as a person and who you are emotionally and being able to tap into those emotions that may have been derived from from some childhood experiences, 
And if you're bringing those emotions um, to the surface and bringing some awareness to, to those emotions, then you're able to change it. And those emotions can also change the way you communicate, the way um, you, you deal with conflicts. Because once you bring those to the surface, and both of them understand where they are emotionally, um, the conflicts that occur are more easily resolved because once you bring it to awareness, you can be, be able to identify it and know that, okay, this is where you are and we need to probably wait for a second and focus on, on whatever emotions were triggered and we can resolve this conflict after afterwards. <clears throat> But most of the time, that is impossible unless you have love for one another. Hmm. And sometimes in therapy sessions, we can cultivate um, why the love is lost and regain the love again. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I thank you very much for doing the work that you do. Dr. Troy Waller is a licensed professional counselor. He works with adults, adolescents, couples, and families in emotional focus therapy to help families and couples resolve issues with intimacy and bonding, and he is passionate about counseling and advocating for African-American male juvenile offenders. Thank you so much, Dr. Waller, for being on the show today. You're so welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So that is our show. Audience, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about the juvenile justice trap for black boys. Remember to follow Know It All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.